was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today is part one of my interview with theater legend Penny Fuller. Penny Fuller has starred in Applause, Rex, Barefoot in the Park, Cabaret, Dividing the Estate, A New Brain, and most recently, Anastasia. She did her acclaimed solo turn in 13 Things About Ed Carpilotti. She is also an Emmy winner for her performance in the TV movie of The Elephant Man, and recently has been performing in Sunday in the Park with George, and in cabarets across the country alongside Anita Gillette in their show Sin Twisters. I hope you enjoy hearing about the first half of Miss Fuller's legendary career, and I hope that it leaves you wanting more. Start with how did you get interested in theater? I was always interested in it. Always. Um, I was, uh, back in my youth, uh, divorced parents were kind of unusual. I mean, now everybody's divorced, practically. But uh, so my parents were divorced. And at one point before, oh, I don't know, I guess they were back living together. I don't know. But anyway, we were all living up in Briarcliff Manor, New York. You know where that is? It's up the Hudson. And one day they said, uh, oh, you want to go to the theater? I was already playing Let's Pretend with my dolls and everything. And, um, they said, you have an uncle who's in a play. And he was not my blood uncle, but he had been married to my Aunt Dorothy, my great Aunt Dorothy. And his name was Bill David, William David. And he was in High Button Shoes. Oh. He was in, which I did see. I was, I don't remember because I was so little. And he had been in Call Me, I don't know if it was Call Me Madam, but some old Ethel Merman thing. I mean, some, you know, he, I mean, he was a character man. And so that was just great. And then I guess at that point, I wanted to be a movie star, like all little girls did. And when Uncle Bill was coming out to the country to have lunch with us one time, I thought, Oh, well, he won't like that. I'll say I want to be in the theater, whatever that is. You know, and he came out and he told me about center stage and left stage and out and thing. And I, from that moment on, I just wanted to be. And then about that time, and I was still little, um, Caesar and Cleopatra, the movie with Vivian Lee and uh, Claude Rains came out. And my girlfriend, Suzanne Foley and I would play Caesar and Cleopatra every day. Every other day, we, I had to play Caesar. And I had these beautiful Japanese kimonos or something that my daddy had. So that was what Caesar wore. But my great aunt, Edie, had given me all of her 1920s dresses. Oh. And they were like long dresses on us and with jewels and things. And they were so beautiful. And chiffon and oh, they were so beautiful. And then we found the lamp shade in the junk pile somewhere that had black fringe, like Cleopatra. 
and I could I can still say most of it. Oh, gentlemen, oh, gentlemen, don't run away. Climb up here by the Sphinx's paw. Do you think the Sphinx could have been my great great grandmother? I mean, I just and I at that point in the school we started looking at um, Egyptian history, and I wrote a book. I mean, a, a, a novel. I mean, it was ten pages called June's Trip to Egypt. So it was either be in the theater or be an Egyptologist. So I became an actress instead, <laughs> kind of. So what were some of your early performing in high school or college? Did you? Well, see, by then they got separated and I moved to Lumberton, North Carolina. And trust me, there wasn't a lot of theater in Lumberton, North Carolina. I did, however, I did have the lead in the French play, Le Médecin Malgré Lui. Um, but I didn't get to play in the high school, the senior play, I didn't get to play the part I wanted. They gave, she, Miss Hamilton, because she knew I wanted to be an actress, gave me the lead, which was boring. And I wanted the comedy part, I didn't get it. So this is not just club soda. Actually, this is a new thing called Perrier's Peach. So I'm gonna let you know how it is. Not bad. Just a oh. faint hint of peach. Anyway, so, all, but all the time I knew I wanted to get out of Lumberton. I wanted a normal life for a little bit of time because it had been crazy. So I had my normal life in Lumberton High School. And then I went, what you did in those days, uh, you went to St. Mary's Junior College in Raleigh because girls were not let into. University of North Carolina, where they had a fabulous uh, theater department, girls couldn't come until their junior year. Oh. So you went to St. Mary's, where you went, and so I went to St. Mary's and I came home and I said, Mom, I can't do it anymore. And my mother said, well, if I were going to college, which she never did, I'd go to some big place like Northwestern. I said, what's that? She says, it's in Chicago, way in the Midwest, but didn't know it had a theater department. So I said, okay, I wrote off to it. And then there, I heard that there was a girl named Patsy McCauley, and she lived in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And she had been up to audition for St. Joan with, um, what's his name? The, uh, Otto Preminger, which was oh. a big fan. And, and I didn't have an audition, but she did up. I mean, she was big time. She said, well, I'll go if you go. She was at Salem College. So my mother took me, oh God, took me to, instead of going 30 miles to Fayetteville, we went 12 miles to Pembroke, which was a, basically the town, if you do any history about the North Carolina and the Indians, it's where the North Carolina Lumbee Indians are. And she, they flagged down the train so you don't have to drive all, all the way to Fayetteville. And they flagged down the train and I got on the train. I woke up by my mother and all I, I was on my way, way out west to Chicago. We picked up Patsy, train went through Rocky Mount where she was. And the next day we spent the night on the train and the next day we landed or whatever you do in a train, arrived in Chicago. And some cute boys came to invite us uh, to meet us and take us and Patsy I think I've probably never seen a boy but she just got so boy crazy and her face would just light up when boys came around and I was bored you know I just wanted to get into the theater so I find out because she was a junior transfer so she could take anything she wanted I was a sophomore 
and I had to take all this junk before I could do the theater. So I was in a bad mood. Anyway, so one day she comes. Oh, and there was this great teacher, Miss Krause, Alvina Krause, and I'll tell you more about her if you're interested in a minute. Oh. But she was, uh, I mean, anybody who studied with her and my whole class was like Tony Roberts and Larry Pressman and Paula Prentice and Richard Benjamin. We were all together and we studied with Miss Krause. But I couldn't get into Miss Krause because I was a sophomore. Oh. So I studied with Dr. Schneiderman, and there was, a, I didn't know it, but there was a war between Dr. Schneiderman and Miss Kress. But I couldn't even take with him yet because I still hadn't done all those, you know, things you had to do, those prerequisites. So I'm sitting, and we were put, the transfer students were put in a hotel because they didn't have room for us. So we were in a hotel, which was even further from campus than the dormitory. And one day, Patsy said, will you walk with me to UT, that's University Theater, because I have, I want to audition for this play, and I'm scared to walk late at night. And I said, well, it's okay. So I get there, and I'm, I'm looking at the script, because there's one sitting there, and I'm just looking at it like that, and I hear this voice say, would you read, please? You, you with the blonde hair. <laughs> me? He said, yes. So I read, and I got the part. Oh, so that's how it all really started. Dr. Schmidt, I was Dr. Schneiderman's pet. He loved me. And so I did that and I did a Brecht play that he did. And I still hadn't studied with Miss Krause. So that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then comes Miss Krause. You want me to go on? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Okay. So Miss Krause, you know, if you're lucky, Charles, you'll get one teacher in your life. I've had five. I'm a pig. I have had five great, great teachers. This was the first one. I went to her. The play that I did was Time of Your Life by William Soroyan. <clears throat> so I go up to, now it's the next year, and I say, Miss Krause, I'd like to uh, audit your class. <laughs> she had her glasses on. She said, have you done anything here? And I said, yes, ma'am, I did. Um, Kitty Duval in the time of your life, and she went, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I thought, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. So I, I would, went in, and I watched all the, and she was terrible. I mean, she was terrifying. She'd say, you're faking, cut, flunk, next. And her whole theory was, if you couldn't take her, you couldn't take New York and the real world. So she was tough. So, and I wasn't even taking the course and I got a, a, a note that I was getting a D. And I was just auditing. So I thought, I don't need this. So back I went to Dr. Schneider and I did another play. And then the next year, it was my time to study with Miss Krause because I only had my senior year. So I went and I took Greek drama. That was, I had Greek drama and then I had, um, other classes with her, but I went to the Greek drama class and you had to do Greek drama, which is, as you can imagine, not like something like Time Out for Ginger or something. It's Greek drama. Mm -hmm. So I got up with some other girl and we did a, a course. It's still in here. It's so terrifying. Numberless are the world's wonders, but none more wonderful than man. And Miss Krause said, cut. Okay, work on it some more. That's okay. So I just thought it was over. She says, okay, it's time. It's time to work on your finals. What are you going to do? 
what, what are you going to do? Charles, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to do Oedipus. Okay, fine. Penny Fuller, she said, what are you going to do? I said, um, she said, you'll do Cassandra. I said, yes, ma'am, Miss Krause. And I went home and looked at Cassandra. And Cassandra, in case you don't remember or haven't done your Greek drama yet, she was the one who could see what was hap going to happen, and she couldn't stop it. But she could see. She could. So I learned this two-page speech, and I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I guess I won't be an actress. I just can't do this. Didn't have a lot to do with Time Out for Ginger. So she allowed you get a, to get up once before your final, and she work on it with her helping you. So the day I got up, I started, and I said, numberless are the world's wonders, but none more what cut. Fuller, come over here. And she said, Cassandra can't see. I mean, she can see and she can't not see. She wants not to see what she's, so she slings me around like a stat, you know, swing the statue or whatever that game was. So now I'm dizzy. She says, okay, now you see. I say, yes, Miss, Miss Cross, yes, ma'am. Numbers are the world's wonders. And okay, and she said, all right, now, Kohanic, that was the biggest guy in class, come up here. And Dick Benjamin, you come up here. Okay, the two of you pull her to the floor, and full of you fight against it. So I'm fighting against them, and that's the pull between you. I'm going to, and then she slings me around some more. I guess she didn't sling me the first time. I forget what she did. Anyway, at the end of it, I'm rolling on the floor, sobbing, and saying, oh, and she said, there, I knew you could do it. <laughs> and that was the day I became an actress, because she broke me like a colt. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she broke down all that fear and all that uh, inhibition and all that. Oh, I don't want to do. And I just, and I was hers. I mean, she could make, she could tell me to do something and I'd do it. And my final exam for her was in as Nina in The Seagull. And at the end of it, she said, brilliant work, brilliant checkoff. And, you know, you could have, I could have died and you put that on my tombstone and I would have been very so she was extraordinary. And she had a summer theater called Eaglesmere. And if you were lucky or unlucky, depending on your state of mind, she would invite you to go to the theater and you would do nine plays in eight weeks or eight weeks and nine, eight plays in nine weeks, I guess it was. And the first, and she didn't do time out for Ginger, you know, she would say, I'm sorry to be putting down time out for Ginger, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. She would do the great plays because she said, that's how you learn. So the first year I was there, we did, I wasn't in this. I was making costumes in the costume shop. We had to make all the costumes too. She did a diary of Anne Frank. Then we did, I'm gonna forget something. Then we did, um, 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 the play about uh, the guy in Tennessee and you know, about, uh, what is there? Oh, I'm going to think of it. And you, even you know it. It's the play. I mean, even you meaning it's an old play. Um, you know, the two, the two, the two lawyers arguing over. Um, oh, in, inherit the wind. Yes. See, I knew you know it. Did that. I, I was just some little character part in that. I'm still sewing, sewing. And the next play was Undine, which is a play that, 
Audrey Hepburn did on Broadway and I saw her. So you can imagine it was a dancey part and she was an underwater nymph. And it was a, uh, what do you call it? I don't know if it was a poet. I don't know. I don't think it was a metaphor, but it was a play. Uh, Jean Giraudoux did it. And that was my, the play she did for me. And at one time when we were rehearsing, she looks and she says, we hate you, Penny. What are you going to do about it? I mean, she was <laughs> terrified. So, but, but I got it and it was wonderful. The next play we did was Richard III and Dick Benjamin played Richard III, just like Olivier, he watched the movie and copied him. It was a good thing. Then we did um, uh, Cave Dwellers, which is an old play. And then we did uh, a Shaw. We did Androcles and the Lion. And then we did a musical, which was, which, which I played. It was called, you know that play, uh, Ruth and Her Sister. Wonderful. No, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And Paula Prentice played Ruth and I played, and Tony Roberts played Bob, and oh. Dick Benjamin played, Dick Benjamin played the guy, uh, I can't remember his name, but he had to keep coming on saying skeet scat school. But you see, we had a huge range. Yeah. And we learned from playing these great parts. We wouldn't learn that much from do, doing just anything. So that's another reason why she was a great teacher. But by this time, she had taught me enough and I had lost enough inhibitions and I had used my brain and my artistic, whatever I was born with. And uh, I was a real actress by then. And I got to New York and other things happened. But I remember she wrote me a letter sometime and said, how are you? Write to me and tell me how you're doing and if you're going to save the theater. <laughs> but that's one of the great teachers that I had and you can see why. And that's why I have survived in the way that I have and why I kind of screw myself up because I don't want to do something that isn't, you know, challenging or, and I should do this because it'll get me something. I don't want to, I wanted to, she ruined me from that point of view. So that's the beginning. So your Broadway debut was, well, technically it was in the moon besieged. Oh, you're not supposed to know that. How do you know that? From your IBDB page. Well, you know why it's why it says technically? Yeah, because I was an understudy. I auditioned for the two leading women and I didn't get them, but they asked me to understudy. I said, all right. And then one day they said, we need you to be in the square dance. I said, I can't because that means it'll be my Broadway debut. And they say, we'll put you in a hat. I said, but I'll still be at my Broadway debut. I don't want it to be in a square dance. And they said, well, we won't tell anybody. And now you know. <laughs> but that's why I was upset, because I didn't want it to be known that I didn't. And then my Broadway debut was exciting, my real Broadway. Yeah, Barefoot in the Park, it was. So how did you audition to replace in that? I was the standby. Oh, the standby. Yes, at first. And I, I was in a play up, with, up in uh, Connecticut, in, uh, where everybody, Westport. And do you, are you, are you, do you know who Cornelia Otis Skinner was? Yes. Of course you do, of course you do. Well, she was the grandmother, and oh. my mother was Constance Cummings. It was Constance Cummings, Jane Wyatt, and Peggy Conklin were the two, her daughters, and I was the granddaughter. And the best was, 
there was a maid in it, and the maid and I dressed together in the dressing room, and it was Margaret Hamilton. Oh. From, yes, so, and so it was the typical Ingenue Park, you know, typical granddaughter, blah, blah, blah. I don't even remember the play. But they said, you've got an audition to replace Peeker, E.J. Peeker in Barefoot in the Park. She's standing by for Elizabeth Ashley, and they don't like her. So you have to come in. You can't go to the opening night party. You have to come into New York and go first thing in the morning. So I didn't go to the opening night party. And I go, and I auditioned, and I got the part. So And so I was the understudy. Uh, the standby, and the difference is that in a play, you have a standby because you're not in the play. An understudy is usually in the play. So... Um. I would come and they said I could leave if she was okay. And this, I'd had, I'd had three rehearsals. I'd been over the third act twice. It was still typed on onion skin paper, you know, that thin paper, it hadn't been printed yet. And I get to the theater and this is the last time I was going to go off and play bridge with some people. And they said, you have to go on tonight. I said, I, what? I said, you have to go on tonight. And I said, Here's a dime. That's how long ago it was. Here's a dime. Call my boyfriend and tell him to go to my house and get my sneakers. Because Liz and I were the same size, but we didn't have the same feet. So I just, I calm took her in. And I went in. Liz was there writhing in pain over her back. I don't, you know, she threw her back out or something. And she was so worried about me that she couldn't think about her back. And I was so worried about her that I couldn't think about what was about to happen to me. So I said, oh, I don't have a wedding ring. She says, there's my ex-husband's ring. It was Jamie, Jimmy Farentino's ring. So I wore his ring. And they said, they put the big heavy coat on me and they said, okay, are you ready? I said, yeah. I mean, I, I was like, I, I, was, I wasn't scared. It was like, I was kind of like that. I just didn't, I mean, there's no way I could remember. So then I hear them say at this performance, Elizabeth Asher, oh, because she was the big, and I go on and I put the flowers in the can like you're supposed to, and I do something else. And then I thought, I don't know what comes next. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, it's not even two minutes. And I went and I sat on this little platform and I thought, if I cry now, everybody will understand. They won't be mad at me. And as I sat on the platform, I saw a suitcase. And I remembered that the logs that went in the little pot stove, hot belly stove over there were in the suitcase. Took the logs out, put the things in, and never forgot another thing. And Bob Redford and Mildred Natwick would come on with terror in their eyes, like, you know, like, what's she going to do? And I just kind of say, I don't know how it happened. But that has made it, uh, it's like every time, every job I've had practically, I've been thrown into. And what that has done for me, I mean, it's done bad things too, because I had to, you know, make up my rehearsal in front of people, you know, till I got to the part. But the thing is that I don't get nervous because I've never had a full rehearsal. I very seldom have I had a real rehearsal period. So, um, yeah. That was so it. How often after that did you get to go on? Oh, I went on a lot. And then she, oh, so that was... Um, I'm not sure when that was, but John Kennedy was killed at some point. Oh. Because one time that I went on, I saw 
the governor of Texas, who'd been shot and he had his hand, and, and that's what made it so real because it wasn't like on a, on a camera or on the screen. And I saw the real guy sitting there. So I think she left sometime in 63, in the winter of 63. And I went on the winter of 60, I mean, I took over the winter, and I must have done it a few times because she was, and she went to do a movie and to marry George Pappard, and I went on and played it for two years. And are you going to be an actor? Maybe. I don't really know yet. Well, don't do anything two years. Just don't. Oh. Because I don't care what anybody says, it's not good for you. It's not good for you. You lose something in trying to keep it fresh. You're putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. You know, you, you can't, you can no longer, just don't do it. Trust me. A year at the most. Okay. So, yes. So one of your next roles was, again, being a standby, this time for Sally Bowles in Cabaret, in the original Cabaret. Yeah. I'd had four rehearsals there too. I'd been over this fruit like fruit shop dance twice. So if I'm correct, <laughs> you'd originally auditioned for Sally Bowles. And well, then what do you need me for? You know everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, everybody had a audition for it. And there were about four of us, and each one of us um was somebody's favorite. I, I don't know whose favorite I was, but there was Lee Lawson, she was somebody's favorite, and uh, Nancy Dussault was another. And uh, they decided not to have a standby, but just to have an understudy in the chorus. When they could, and then somebody said to Hal Prince, what about that young girl who's a movie star in, the, in that movie about, whatever that movie was about Israel, and you know what I mean, uh, with Paul Newman? I don't. Well, 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 you'll, you'll know when they say it. But anyway, she was in it. And he said, if she can carry a tune, I'm hiring her because I can't stand this with everybody arguing. So they hired her. And they went out of town. And she broke her leg. And she also got hoarse a lot because she didn't know how to do it. And I didn't know how to do it with Barefoot in the Park because Liz Ashley and I, I mean, Liz still talks like that. But I, you know, I, because it's all yellow, so nobody had been trained well enough in those days. But by this time, I had started studying singing. So they called me up on 11 o'clock Saturday morning and said, You're on this afternoon. So I get to the theater. I said, and I said to the conductor, do I, do I start or do I wait for you to point to me? I mean, that's how stupid and unschooled I was. And he said, I'll point, okay. So, and Lottie Lenya was so kind to me and was helping dress me because I mean, I was like, I wasn't scared, but I was zoned again because, uh, so I get on and the, the, the thing that you, the, the set piece that had the little bar in it that she comes out from the gate, from the curtains, it goes like, a, like one of those things at the, you know, Roseland or not Roseland, that's in Canada, but what's it called over there with the roller coasters? You know, um, those six flags. Tony, Tony, well, yeah, something like that. So I go on and the thing's going like that and I look over there and there is Joel Gray in the corner with makeup, with a light shining up this with that weird makeup on, it was like a nightmare. And the silver things, the silver curtains going like that, and I was like that. 
and he came out and said, Fräulein Sally Balls. And I go through the thing and I never forgot another thing again. I don't know how I do it all these times. And um, so it turned out I played it over a hundred times. And it's funny because Hal Prince, whom I adored, uh, he, he negotiated my contract with me. He pulled me up to the dressing room and said, I listen, um, looks like you're going to go on a lot. So I'll pay you $50 a performance on uh, not to go over $500. I'll pay you $400 a week and $50 a performance with a stop clause at $500. And I said, pay me $600. I couldn't do it now. Uh, pay me $600 and I'll go on for nothing. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay you $500. No, I'll pay you $300 a week and you'll go on for $100 with no stop calls. So I made more than anybody else in the play when I, oh. would, when I would go on for a week. So I made $1,100 a week. So I did it for a very long time. And then, they, then Jill was leaving and they stupid me. This is what I mean. I'm so crazy. They said, okay, you want it? I said, no, I don't want to do it anymore. I've done it. I don't want to do that. I mean, I loved it, but I've done it. I want to go on and do other things. So they got this girl. Oh, by the way, the, Bob Redford came to see me in it because we were friends from America. Um, and he said, you know, you should dye your hair red. I said, oh, okay. The next day my head was in the sink. So I had red hair. And they replaced me, I mean, they got Anita Gillette, this girl named Anita Gillette. And I kind of knew her and she had red hair and they got her for Sally. And people started getting us mixed up then, which is why we have our show called Sin Twisters. Because, I mean, I, I mean, they still do it. And we looked entirely different, but they still do it because we kind of did the same parts. We kind of had, I mean, she, she even started doing dramatic parts, too. So it was, you know, but that's why we did Sin Twisters. Oh. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I've got to go and learn other things, which was stupid business-wise, but was wonderful for my soul. So in Cabaret and in Barefoot in the Park as a standby, what was your relationship like with the other members of the cast? They loved me. And they loved me a lot in cabaret because I was better than Jill. Oh. They loved me a lot in in uh, barefoot just because I was good. I kept the, I was good enough. Then they, you know, um, I'll tell you. Here's a good story. My mother was coming up from North Carolina, and she usually flew, but for some reason this particular weekend she took the train and she got in about eight o'clock or seven 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 fifteen. Uh, at Penn Station, and she came directly to the theater. I gave her the key to my apartment. She'd already been there a lot, so she knew everybody. So she went up to say hello to everybody. And then she went home to my apartment. I did the play, and when the play was over, it was Sunday was the day off in those days. And Monday night, she says, I'm coming to the play. I said, yeah, right, you're coming Monday to the play. And I say, ring, 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 well, four more flights, mom. And I look, and Mildred Natwick had dressed my mother 
up in her coat and hat. They had arranged that that Saturday night. It was Millie's idea. This is how much fun we had back then. So she had put my mother, and so so there. My mother's like climbing up the five, four flight, the pretend four flights of stairs. And I said, "One more flight, mom." And then I see them changing clothes quickly, and Millie comes in, and she was laughing so hard she couldn't do a line for about five minutes. <laughs> it was wonderful. I mean, it was just wonderful. But that's the kind of camaraderie we had because. Yeah. Everybody loved each other, and she did that for them. And then when the Metropolitan Opera closed, uh, Kurt Kasner and Mildred Natwick went down and bought things. And that night, they came to the theater. Millie put on the, uh, what are they called? The Valkyrie hat and was going up the stairs. <laughs> and Kurt, I mean, we had so much on it. On, on Mildred's birthday, Kurt, they fired, or they canceled her limousine to take her home and got a horse and buggy. Herbie, Herbie Edelman and um, Kurt Kasner, no, no, I'm wrong, it was Bob Redford and, and, and Kurt Kasner, had swords, to, I don't know where they got them, and they stood on either side of the carriage as the, the footman, and Millie got in her, in her carriage, and Kurt Kasner gave her two dozen red roses, and she was driven home. With, like um, that. I mean, that's the kind of fun. We, that was when it was so, and nobody was uh, frivolous on stage. It was the it was part of the thing that made the on stage so good. You know that there was this fun and this feeling of adventure and feeling of play, which is it is called after all a play. You know? yeah. so, okay. So, do you think that even though you were standing by, it was worth it to sort of be part of those two productions? Oh, yes, especially for those, because I wasn't ready. But, uh, I mean, I got, I would became ready by doing them. I became ready by doing Barefoot in the Park. I could do anything after I'd been through that for two years. And then, as a singer, that I was just learning to sing, I could do, I mean, that's how I became a singer, or whatever, I'm a singing actress. You know, so yeah, it was fabulous. It was fabulous. And I got quite a wonderful reputation. Poor Jill was not a very good actress. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was, she just wasn't. She didn't have any training, but she was a starlet, you know. But when I went on one Sunday night and all of the MAME people came, the anti MAME, uh, Angela Lansbury, everybody, they came. It was a Sunday night actress fun. And I had gone. And when they lifted me up to the, the scream was as it was uh, all over. I mean, it was really, they appreciated someone who got this part, but didn't get the part and was as good as I was. And I was because I was an actress and Sally didn't have to sing that well. And it made the part work. And I'm not saying, but I'm just saying all oh, Miss Krause and everybody you know, all those people and all that life in there gave me that performance. So the next thing you did was be part of Joe Papp's Delacorte Theater. What was it like to sort of be part of that in its early-ish days? It was wonderful because Miss Krause, of course, loved Shakespeare. So I was, we were being, Paula and I played in As You Like It. Paula Prentice played Rosalind and I played Celia. Dick played um, whatever his name is that I end up with. And then, and Richard III, well, see, that was, that was As You Like It. Then I did Richard III, 
and I played um, Lady uh, Lady Anne, Percy, Lady Percy, in that. And then the last one I did was, and the second, and then we did part two every oh. other night. And part two, I was Lady Percy when, when the wars, my husband had gotten killed and I had to go and I said this incredibly famous speech. I mean, it's not that famous, but it's an incredibly powerful speech about, oh, father, father-in-law, do not, for God's sake, do not go to these wars. And this was in the 60s, so that was very double meaning. And also Jerry Friedman had uh, uh, dressed me as a widow, like Ethel Kennedy. Oh. Billy, Bobby had just been killed. And um, what was I going to say? Something else about that. Yeah, Bobby had just died, yeah. So, and then one night, oh, Charles, one night, this was, that I was so lucky to have been there. They did both plays, part one, oh. part two, in one night. It started about seven. We were in Still in the Light. And then they had a break and everybody had a picnic and whatever, about 12.30. And then we started again and we did part two into the middle of the night. It was so thrilling. Mm -hmm. It was great. And Jerry Friedman, who directed the th three that I did, I did, did I do another one? Yes, I did uh, Richard III. Um, but he had been studied, he had been trained by Miss Krause. Oh. So, and he'd worked a lot with uh, Gower Champion, but he, and so he'd been a lot of, done a lot of musical stuff, but he had been trained by Miss Krause. So that's one of the reasons that he did all this Shakespeare, because he'd been there. And so it was wonderful for us to be, and in fact, the school, the Northwesterns fired her because she became of the age of retirement, 68. In those days you were dead if you were 68. And we started my first protest, which was protesting her firing. You see. Oh. Um, and, uh, but he, he, we, we were, there we were, you know, four or five of her chums from, from school and Jerry from the school. And we were, you know, putting out into the universe these things that she had taught us. Yeah. So your next role was perhaps your most famous. You've had a lot of famous roles, but maybe Eve in applause was your uh, most famous. So you were brought in out of town to start doing that. Explain how that sort of happened. Well, I was in Hollywood because they were writing a pilot, pilot for me, which oh. was ultimately never seen even on the dead pilot season. But it was sweet. It was sweet. I, it was a detective comedy. Uh, the one with Rock Hudson came later and was better than this one, but it was that kind of thing. I don't remember what that was. But, um, so. I had, oh, Hal Prince flew me in from California to audition for a play called Company. Oh. So I went and I auditioned for, not I'm never getting married. I don't think it was that one. I don't know, some part. And when I finished, I said goodbye and I came out the door and this man said, what are you doing here? I said, what? He said, I'm the stage manager for applause and we wanted you to audition, but nobody would fly you in. I said, well, the Prince did. And he said, well, come and audition. So I went in and I gave, if I do say so myself, I gave a hell of an audition. And 
And then I got back on the plane to go home. I was living in LA and they gave me the script and I read the script and I said, oh God, please don't make, don't let the plane crash, but don't let me get this because this is not very good. Because it wasn't at that point. Or at least I didn't think it was. And so I went back and I finished my pilot, I guess. I guess they did the, I can't remember. But I do know that I was in, my head was in the sink. They were washing my hair at Ori's. I just wrote this out for Sandra Warner to show a story. I was in Ori's Beauty Salon on Palm Drive across from the Santa Palm Car Wash on Santa Monica Boulevard. And they're washing my hair. I mean, very glamorous. And they bring the phone and it's my manager. And he says, they want you to fly to New to Baltimore to, or to take over the part of Eve Harrington and all about, uh, what's it called, applause. I said, drip, 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 drip. I said, when? He said, tonight. So I go home and I pack up in case I'm not coming back. I put my little car, I had a little car, I bought a car, they put that in storage, and off I went to Baltimore. And I went to see the play that night. I said, what, don't put me in the third row, because I had a third row, said, because if anybody sees me, they'll know, well, I'm here because I have this reputation of taking over things. And they said, oh, you can just say you're visiting your aunt in Baltimore. I said, I'm telling you. So they put me there, and Jean Foote, who was one of the main dancers in the show, comes out the Sapiro and says, Woo, Pippity Buns! <laughs> and I saw in a minute, again, this is, I think, Miss Krause, because I saw what was wrong with the girl, and they didn't know exactly how to fix it. I don't know that she could have done it, but I, she might could have. She, I mean, but she was a little too young anyway. Uh, it should have had somebody who was on her, you know, like I could have done because I was 30 or something. So it was like somebody who was, it was not her, it was her last shot. I mean, it was how she was going to be. So, uh, but she was not a threat. She was kind of, you know, a girl. I just want to be in the theater and I think you're wonderful, Miss, Miss, uh, whatever her name is, Channing. And you didn't believe it. And so the next day, uh, uh, they, I, uh, they said, you, you want to meet Miss Bacall? I said, yes. And I, I remember saying, let her know that if I'm good, it will only help her in this play. So I don't know what it was, but we hit it off. Even that first meeting, we just knew. We were girlfriends. And I got the part. And... Uh, I'm rehearsing. This was on Sunday I got the part. I met her. Monday I rehearsed the music. Tuesday I had a rehearsal with the understudies. Wednesday both Diane, my predecessor, and I learned a new dance for the, um, the whatever that was, the gay bar. And then Thursday I had my run through. Full orchestra, full costumes, full lights. And I'm thinking, wow. And Larry Casher, the producer, brings me, I'm sitting on the stage, just getting ready to do the thing, brings me a tuna sandwich. And I thought, you know, this is better than having your name on a parking place in Hollywood. This is the best, when the producer brings you a tuna fish sandwich. And I thanked him, and he said, okay, it's ready to go, baby. I said, okay, and I look out, and Diane is sitting in the audience next to Ron Fever. Uh, 
And I said, what is she doing here? Well, I forgot to tell you that I, I had told, uh, I said, you know what you need is Eve's uh, biography that she tells in the dressing room needs a little fattening out to make her more believable. And so I, so Comden and Green wrote, wrote a better speech. And I said, so what's she doing there? He said, she thinks if she'd had that speech, they wouldn't have fired her. And I said, okay, honey. You want to see why you're not doing this? Watch this. I mean, I got into Eve right away. And uh, it was better already because there was a threat, you know. I mean, I played this nice girl that was just admiring of this. But, you, you know, it was like there were two forces on stage, ultimately. And when we got to Detroit, uh, we start, and, and Ron Field said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm rehearsing. He said, but that's not the way you did it the other night. I said, well, I'm trying to find the right way to do it. He said, you have to do it the same, otherwise I can't fix it. I said, oh, get me out of musicals, God, please. This is ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, the rest is history. We, we did it and it worked and McCall and I were buddies and I had a wonderful time and, and I knew what to do with that. I just knew. And all of that I know is from the work with Miss Krause and working on great plays and analyzing great parts and stuff. Anyway, yes. So one thing you got to do during that process was to play Eve with the original Eve from the movie and Baxter as Margot. So what was that like to do? So Ann Baxter comes in and Ron Field is nowhere. He's somewhere, you know, he's not there to help her. So the stage manager is helping her. And all the people trying to help her, in the, you know, they kind of say, no, no, you stand over here and they're moving her. And he just wants to say, don't do that. And at one point she comes into the dressing room and I've got the dress, I'm holding the dress like in the movie. And I, somebody had given me the picture of Ann Baxter holding the dress. And I'm bowing in front of the thing and she comes in and she says, Eve. And I looked up at her in what I was doing. And she looked at me and we both screamed because we knew what that moment was. Yeah. In the meantime, they're still messing her around and they give us a break. And I go down to her dressing room. Ah, youth, I couldn't do it now. Then, Miss um, listen to me. I said, every movie star in Hollywood wanted this part. You got it because you're the only one who knows how to play it. Don't you let them upset you. One of the guys was, you know, you know, saying, no, dear, you come over here. And so just saying, come over here. He was, what? I said, don't you let anybody tell you how to play Eve Harris. I mean, Margot Janney, nobody knows better. Than so we became like that. And she, I bought her for her opening, a little silver apple. You see that? From Tiffany, which is where you put saccharin if you're gonna have saccharin instead of sugar. And I had it engraved and I said, uh, goodbye Eve, hello Margot, love AB from PF or something like that. And she gave me, when I left, she gave me goodbye Eve, hooray Penny, love AB. Oh. And she was wonderful in it. And they were entirely different, but they were both Margot Janet. So as you were mentioning earlier, the writer of that the writers of that show, not just one, but two legendary musical comedy writing teams, Strauss and Adams and Compton and Green. So what was it sort of like to have to work with all these big people? 
I didn't have a thought about it. I didn't have time. You know, I had four days. Yeah. And, and they kept saying, you're right, when I said, fatten it up a little, that speech, you know. And Charles and, and Lee, I don't remember. I must have gotten notes, but I don't remember. I don't remember. And uh, I just knew, again, I knew how to play that part. Yeah. I just knew. I mean, I just knew. I don't know. I don't know why I knew. I just knew. And I could go to that ugly place and make it triumphant and yet get booed every night. And people would say, don't worry, that's good, that's good. And I, I understood that, you know, that was, yeah. Yeah, Nick Dante, who wrote the original chorus line, was um, the chorus boy that I met, the first person. And Bonnie Franklin and her manager, Marin, Marilyn Shapiro, were friends of mine. And they said, oh, you're here, come. And this is before I took over, as I was beginning to rehearse. He said, we'll have lunch on Sunday before I started. And she said, you have to look out. You'll have a wonderful time. Everybody's great, but you have to look out for Nick Donnie. He's a real... So, and they said, as a matter of fact, here he comes. So he came into the restaurant. And he sat down, like, kind of like, mm-hmm, yeah. And I said, hi. And um, we talked a little, and I said, what's that? Because he was holding this package. He said, a notebook. I said, he said, it's a book. I'm writing. I'm a writer. I said, really? And we started talking about writing. And we got to be like that. And the thing he was writing was not, not chorus line, but eventually he was writing chorus line and all that. And that was because, I mean, we got to be friends. So every, from those times on, he, I would get little flowers in my dressing room that said, for PF from PF, for Penny Fuller from the Phantom Fairy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got along really well. Everybody did. And Nick was just, they were all, I, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So your next show, people say that it was maybe a little more tumultuous, which was Rex. So oh! Oh! <laughs> so you... You were working with Richard Rogers towards the end of his career. What was mm -hmm. it like to do that? Not much fun. No. It wasn't much fun. He wasn't very helpful. He couldn't talk because he'd had his larynx or whatever from cancer taken out. So I mean, let's talk like that. And uh, I was having a terribly difficult time because they weren't doing it right. Again, you know, they've done it and I have. I have written a show. They know what they're doing, but they didn't know what they were doing. And what they were doing is the play became heavy with, with King Henry. That's fine. But then Anne kind of got lost in the, the whole point of it was the two women and Henry, you know, mother and daughter and all kinds of stuff like that. And there was this song that I sang uh, after we were married, after I had the baby and it was a girl and he was furious, of course. And after that, he comes in and we have a fight. I catch him, oh, I catch him with Jane Seymour. Oh. So I catch him with Anne C Jane Seymour and I say, get her out of my castle or whatever I said. And he comes in and he says, and we have this fight. And he said, I said, either Elizabeth, baby Elizabeth will be queen uh, Elizabeth will be queen, don't you, I will, whatever. Give me more babies, whatever, I don't know. 
And he said, lady, I raised you up. I can't push you down. And he walks off and the music goes bum bum. Yes, and I said, I can't sing. This is what you mean. I said, I can't. That's not where we are. And the music, you know, the Jay Blackton was going boom, 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 and I couldn't start because that's not. So I called a meeting. I, I swear to God, I couldn't do it now, but I did. I called a meeting. Mr. Rogers' uh, suite at the Watergate Hotel. And um, I went in and I explained. I said, it's not the right moment from the, defying the king. You've got to have some, I don't know, but it just doesn't. So the next day, Sheldon, God bless him, wrote me a whole new lyric, which was not the answer. But he wrote me a whole new er lyric, something like yesterday, you put me on the throne, my love, and da-da-da-da-da. But it still wasn't right. So that was in 19 what? What was that? Do you see the year of that? Rex? I, 1970. No. Yes. I'm eight, something like that. Five, 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 six, five, six. 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 But um, he and I were at a thing. And the Northwestern always has a, uh, every five years, they have a alumni and all the theater people from New York, blah, blah. And uh, so we were there and his wife was ill. So she wasn't there. And Tony War Roberts brought me and he said, I don't want to stay for the party. And I said, well, I do. <laughs> so Sheldon said, well, let's go have a drink. We'll go to the party. I said, okay. So we're having a drink and we're talking. And I said, Sheldon, Charles, this is the most, it makes me cry to even think of this story. Because there are not a lot of people like Sheldon. But, so I said, Sheldon, you remember how I could never sing? The song was cut from the show, by the way. And, but it's on the record. Or the, whatever it is, CD, whatever. I said, you remember how I could never start that song? He said, yes, I, I do. But you, if you'd had a different director, I said, no, it's not that. And I explained to him that the place of raging at the king, you can't just switch and be, and he said, oh, that's very interesting. This was the next day, Charles. I studied that scene in Rex and came to the conclusion that you were right. What's needed is some transition music to prepare us for the intro into So Much You Love Me. I think it's the kind of music that I'll be able to write myself. I know it should begin with something quite dramatic or anguished or both, which would underscore a moment when Anne can just stand there and digest the angry and bitter exchange that she's just experienced with Henry. Then little by little, the music can lead us to a more melancholy mood where Anne can reflect on the deeply melancholy change that has taken place in her relationship with Henry. Then we'll It's remarkable to me that after all these years, that transition is so vivid in your mind. Far from needing to forgive you, I wish to thank you. Love, Sheldon. Oh, that's really nice. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. That's, that's a mensch. That's more than a mensch. 
you know, that he would listen and, uh, and that he would, you know, he would, it was amazing because I wasn't, I just, I just, I just wanted to tell him why I had niggled at it so much and said, it's not right. And that's what happened. Oh, it's just one of the most thrilling things that this man could listen to me and not think that I was trying to be hotsy totsy, but that I was trying to make his play and his song better. Yeah. So I want to ask you about one more part about Rex, which oh, is I your know. co-star Nicole Williamson. Yes. What do you want to know? I guess just he was famously difficult. Was he really? Oh yes. Oh yes. He was difficult anyway. He was he, he was not a happy person. He was a wonderful actor. This was not the part for him. Really wasn't. He, in a funny way, this is my opinion here, he was more of a tenor or a light baritone. And you need a deeper voice, a deeper, his, his wonderful flares of anger and, and neuroticism are wonderful, but it just wasn't quite, I don't know. But, and he was not happy. And he was not drinking except a little white wine. I don't know if you know what that means, but that means he's drinking a lot of white wine. <laughs> and uh, he, he was just unhappy and he didn't know what to do, you know, and he wasn't the right, he was too tall and skinny. It, had, it should be, you know, and anyway, he tried and for a while. And then one day um, he wanted to get out of the play. And so he, and they were trying to, it got not terrible reviews, but mixed reviews. So they did a commercial to try to, and he wouldn't do the commercial. So we did the commercial and his understudy was in the back. It looked like him, it didn't matter. And uh, at the end of it, uh, we finished and blah, blah, blah. And that night, the night that we did the commercial, I come out for my bow before his and I'm making a bow and behind me I hear, pardon the words, fuck you, <laughs> and I turn around and I see Jimmy Litton has just been slapped by Nickel Williamson. And this big girl here took my arm and pulled Nickel into the thing, made him bow and we bowed and the curtain came down and I heard, him, heard them start and I just thought, I'm out of here. And I, my dressing room was up here on the on stage left, and I went up the stairs. And I remember, I remember thinking, is this what the Germans did during World War II? Just pretended like they hadn't been around. Because I just pretended like I didn't, you know. The next day, it was all over the papers. It was all over everything. How Nickel Williamson had slapped the chorus boy and blah 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 blah. blah, blah. And I thought, oh God, how am I going to do this play with him? You know, he's bad enough when he's not mad. So I get to the theater and the Times, I, I don't know if it was the Times, but newspapers and flashing lights and the thing to do the kid, everybody going into the dressing room through the stage door. And I thought, I'm not going to. So I don't know where the gods came down and gave me grace. I walked in through the front of the house. I went up to Nichols' room and I, I said, hello. And I said, I came in and I said, you son of a bitch, 
I said, you want this pay to play to close and you pull a stunt like that, we are gonna run forever. And I don't know where I had got it from, but it was the perfect thing to let him off the hook. Cause I mean, he knew he'd done a stupid thing, but what he couldn't take it back. Couldn't say he didn't do it. Too many thousands of people saw it. And it was a way for us to laugh and be able to play with each other again on stage. So, so, but he was, he was just miserably unhappy. And instead of, I mean, you know, a lot of people are unhappy in the theater. A lot of people do it because they're unhappy, not because something from it, or not because they were trained by Miss Krause to think that it's a, it's an art, and it's a place that we can go as artists that is not grounded in, in this kind of reality, but is grounded, and we go to that and we give it to you, the audience, and above. The, the orchestra, the, the, the minds, hearts, and souls, and bodies of the actors and the audience meet like this. And something happens, and hopefully you're changed, or you're, you have insight, or you have some, or you, something happens to you. It's not just fun to sit and watch a play. It's, I mean, it is, but it's, it's more than, it can be more than that. Well, you got somebody really serious, didn't you? I'm sorry. Listeners, thank you all, as always, for tuning in. And I know you'll be eager to hear the next half of this wonderful interview, which is coming out on all the same streaming services next Monday. Thank you.